Today on Semi-Intellectual Musings, Bill gives us a glimpse into his teaching toolbox, Matt, the Luddite, is twice blown off his seat because he can't handle the technology, and I want you to simmer down with Orwell's nonfiction. Woman, woman, tell me your name, let me have my life That was, um, yeah, I was in like Cub Scouts. We called it like there's beavers and then beavers, cubs, right? cubs. And uh, then uh, yeah. I dropped out before Scouts, which was the uh, like the the teenager oh, yeah, cubs yeah. or yeah. whatever. And um, but there has been certain skills and tips about being out in the woods that have really uh, stuck with me. And one of them is uh, birch bark. Oh, like making a canoe or making a fort for yourself or that kind of stuff like or make a lean to a lean to yeah. lean to yeah. um and i i know how to like get like cedar boughs and stuff like that so i can get off the ground but uh birch trees man that's like nature's newspaper absolutely you yeah. can do a lot of stuff i love throwing it in a fire personally because it just kind of flames it up gets the fire going real <laughs> really? quick but you know that's my pyrotechnic side man this one time when we were uh camping it was our first camping trip and it was way into the witching hour like 3 a.m and uh i'm looking next uh next to me my buddy mike he just takes my lighter and just chucks it into the campfire no and he's like what are you gonna do and i'm like what do you mean what am i gonna do and it was like really eh? yeah and just shot like this flame and knocked him like back and uh yeah it was just like valuable lesson there's a lesson for the woods. Yeah. Don't throw a Bic lighter into a campfire. Or tell people who would that you have a lighter. No, like, this was uh, way out of character. Like, Mike's one of the nicest guys. Like, he's not some sort of, like, crazy animal or anything like that. Like, you wouldn't expect it. Because as soon as he did it, he's like, oh, oh, I, what was I even trying to do there? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, we're recording now. Uh, how have how you been? How's your week, Matt? What's uh, new in the world of Matt? Um... Well, I went for a baby training run. A training run, yeah. Uh, yeah, I went to... Uh, what does um, that mean? I went to my aunt and uncle's house, and uh, they look after my cousin's uh, firstborn. Um, he's one years old. And uh, yeah, I kind of had a baby tutorial. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And how's that going? Uh, well, it was... Um, he was a little bit unsure of the Blue Jays hat. So he might be a Yankees fan like you. Perfect. Um, but uh, I kind of took it off and played, like, put it back on and like danced around with this ball with a smiley face on it. And he kind of warmed up to me a little bit. But like every so often, like every five, ten minutes, he would look for uh, grandma uh-huh. and uh, couldn't find her. And then just start crawling away, like crying. Okay. So I got to look after him myself on Monday. Okay. And um, I've never changed a diaper before. I've seen it done. Um, I fed him, which was good. So I fed a baby for the first time on Thursday. Wow. And, um, I think I've handed a, an infant a bottle once or twice. Okay. Yeah. So, so relatively green to the whole yeah, baby Yeah, we'll see thing. how this goes. Well, the baby's still alive right now? Uh, so far. Okay. Well, that's, so far. you know, um, yeah, I haven't got it, there yet. It's on Monday, so it's coming up. So we'll, I'll report back. I, I, as a baseline, keeping the baby alive is good. 
So you want to continue doing that. I, I hear they recover quickly as well. So maybe... Well, like after you've injured it? Yeah, just in case. Uh, How about we not think about the recovery time? <laughs> just don't even get to injuring think, it. You know what I think is going to happen is I'm going to change his diaper like 10 times. Because yeah. I'm just going to think anytime he cries, he needs a diaper change. Right. Yeah, uh, and, and I have also, there's another thing I don't know. I have no idea how often babies uh, go to the washroom in their pants. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's going to be a little bit of a crash course. I'm uh, uh, trying well, not to be nervous. Well, okay, so from experience with my nieces and nephews uh, and watching my brothers and sisters raise babies, um, inevitably you just got to do the sniff test. Yeah, I uh, saw my aunt do that, and I also saw her... Um, Pull the diaper back and then just wipe her finger in there to see if he peed in it. I yeah. was like, wowza. See, I think uh, you can do that with your own baby. I'm not sure. Like, I've never done that. But I've seen my brothers and sisters do it. <laughs> uh, it's a little weird to do with someone else's kid, maybe. Well, maybe. I don't what know. What about a grandchild? Because this is uh, well, really that's a like question your kid. Of, yeah, a grandchild is kind of like your kid. Like that's that's okay. This is like a question of kinship, right? Like yeah. how far does your kinship ties uh, and the norms around your position yeah. extend, right? Yeah. So like cousin kid, like what is my cousin's kid to me? Even is that a second cousin? Your cousin's kid is that second cousin, or does it just not even count in like Western culture? No, like, we it don't must even count. have a ter- if it doesn't have a term, then it doesn't really have significance. So are you are you that kid's us. uncle? I think I'll probably be called an uncle, but then he's got two other brothers, right? So, like, that's another thing. You don't want to, like, offend, like, the direct siblings no. by, like, calling someone else uncle. Like, I have a whole bunch of uh, buddies who will be uncles because I just have my one sister, right? Right, so, yeah. Um, okay, so your sister's kid is your uh, niece, or niece or nephew, nephew. and then yeah. you're their uncle. Yeah. But your cousin's kid, I don't even, I don't know what that is. Because it's not a second cousin, right? No, it's not a second cousin. Would you be a great uncle? And is, they would be is your... a second cousin a cousin's cousin? Uh, I think second, yeah, second cousin is like, oh, what is second cousin? I, don't, I have no idea what second cousin is. And then, but then you also have to do like the once removed things, huh. which I'm not sure how they work either. Huh. Okay, well, yeah, this is something where maybe, um, some sort of expert in uh, yeah. kinship can write into the show and uh, we'll glance at that email. Yeah, <laughs> but it, glance is probably the right word. Uh, all that stuff just confuses me. See, I think it was much more important when we had huge families and you were worried about marrying like your cousin or something. Um, mm. But like our family structures are quite small mm. uh, and we're geographically dispersed. Like, we, we tend to live far from one another. So we're no longer, like, in a small community where, like, you have, I don't know, a family of, like, 200 um, close ties. But anyway. Hmm. Interesting. What did you yeah. do this week? <laughs> um, what did I do? I um, So after having uh, proctored the exam, I had to grade the exam. Okay. So I uh, spent... The second most interesting thing you can do in grad school is well, grading. I'm not sure if it's that interesting. No, I'm being totally sarcastic. That's my sarcastic voice, yeah. everyone. <laughs> so I um, graded the exam, got all the marks up. That took uh, how you know, many? Uh, how many exams did you have? I had uh, fifty plus, and then I had to coordinate all the marks for everyone, all the grades, final grades. So the, it was there was like two hundred and some two hundred and change in the class. Um, so I had to do all that. You know, it took me from start to finish. It, it took me like two days. Mm. Um, not Ooh, of wow. not of like solid eight hour days, but working on it maybe two three hours per day. So, yeah. Um, 
Because so you can only like you can only grade so many papers, and then like I've always yeah. found as a grader that, um, and for any like TAs out there that might be listening, um, like you hit a point where, especially with essay um, tests, yeah. where you get mean and angry that you're still grading, and that's when you the point where you realize you have to like stop, yeah, and step away probably for the whole day as well, because yeah. it's not it's not fair to the students who put a lot of work in there. Right. No. Well, that's it. And um, especially on final essays, I find students uh, sometimes over-prepare. So they end up writing, um, you know, page and page and page of stuff. And really all we're looking for is like four bullet points. Mm. But, you know, I think I read through what they've written. Um, sometimes they get part marks. Um, I don't necessarily take marks away if they've started overwriting. Um Yeah, I don't but... penalize for... Um... For lots of points. And like, it is unfortunately a bit of a rare um, thing where you get a, a, a test that is like just chock full. Like, I, I remember writing tests like that where I'd yeah. just be like, here's everything that I remember about archaeology. Yeah. And I'd just throw it down there because I'm that's like, that's how I used to do it. Because it's like, well, there's going to be marks in there somewhere, right? Um, that's why I always did better on like essay, short answer, long answer yeah. sort of tests. Um, but hate the multiple choice. Yeah, I, I, I would multiple choice exams. It doesn't really like. I guess it can kind of work in the sense that you can get students to recall facts, but it's not even that's not super valuable in the social sciences. No, um, I I like definitions sometimes. Like if you're looking for a yeah. short, easy to mark thing, it's like um, define this concept, give one example. There's two yep. marks, right? That's yep. easy to that's do, good. and that's fair, right? But it's like, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I don't like multiple choice for social sciences. Maybe econ. So there it is. Uh, Matt and Phil do not like multiple choice exams. Yeah, yeah book it. Book it. Yeah. Um, so anyway, welcome to the podcast. This is Semi-Intellectual Musings, uh, the podcast that it explores social science, humanities, and arts. Uh, it is co-hosted by myself, Philip Primo. And Matt Sanderson. Uh, what we try to do on this podcast is put the published academic intellectual world in conversation with your everyday life and we do it through a series of discussions debates uh banterings as uh, someone has recently uh oh, really? called what we do <laughs> yeah that's good uh we don't take ourselves too seriously uh, and what we try to do is make everything uh that we talk about relatable uh down to earth um we try very hard to make the show appealing for a wide audience that is interested in uh, social sciences, humanities, or arts. Yeah. And with that wide audience, I think it's uh, kind of interesting to think about who listens to our podcast. Like, I just assume it's people who have, like, done an undergrad degree in social sciences of some form, maybe your grad students, uh, maybe a professor or two. That would be pretty cool. But um, I don't know. I I think we want this to be for those who ask that question, like, what is anthropology? Yeah. What What do sociologists do? What do they even study? Is it relevant? Is it relevant? Yeah. yeah. So I think relevance is a big thing for us. And then I had the thought, because uh, I always struggle with what is this podcast, and I usually dawns on me on the drive over here. Um, but I was thinking, um, I went to my bookshelf again today and grabbed this time like five books, two of them just to give to Phil, but we're going to end up talking about it later on, um, talking about them later on. And, uh, and a couple where that was basically what I'm going to talk about on this episode. We're going to talk, I'm going to talk about smallpox and, uh, the outbreak in Montreal. Um, but that was just from like 
okay, second cup of coffee, walk by my bookshelf. I'm like, oh, that's what I'm talking about today. So I think this podcast is kind of like our bookshelf, like talking to the world. (laughs) Yeah. So it's our bookshelf talking to the world. What we promise you in return is that everything that we talk about, uh, the topics that we uh, decide to focus in on or the interviews that we do um, is our honest opinion. Uh, When we give recommendations or when we... uh, point you to certain articles or websites, it's because there's something there that we found useful, something that we found interesting in, in, in the discussion. Uh, so we want to share that with you. Um, likewise, we'd love to hear your comments about the show. You can reach us on Twitter at the underscore sim underscore pod. That's the underscore S-I-M underscore P-O-D. You can email us at semi-intellectual at gmail.com. That's semi-intellectual, all one word, at gmail.com. We have a website on the Podbean network. That's thesim.podbean.com. And uh, we are now on iTunes and Stitcher. So uh, please rate. Hooray! Yay! (laughs) Please uh, give us some ratings and some reviews. Tell us what you think. It uh, really helps the show. It gives us ideas for future episodes, what people like, what people don't like. So if we've said something that you like, tell us. And uh, if we said something that you didn't like or didn't like how we said it, uh, tell us that too. Um, And before we start the episode, I just wanted to send a big thank you to Phil for producing this show and figuring out all the audio stuff, getting the equipment. Um, I really couldn't do it without Phil. So um, if you have any technical complaints, send them Phil's way. Well... (laughs) <laughs> All right. Well, uh, how? On that note, how about we uh, get on with the show? Let's get it on. Welcome back. Uh, today we'll be talking about technology and the classroom or uh, technology in the classroom. Uh, basically, I'm going to be offering a series of recommendations for things that will make uh, your lectures or your classroom experience more engaging. And I'll also offer some suggestions for increased uh, productivity around collaboration and writing um, and some stuff around time management. Yeah, Cool. Um, And Phil mentioned one or two of these recommendations, but he says he has maybe more than a dozen. (laughs) I think uh, I'm up to 19 or 20 right now. Okay. So there's definitely going to be a lot in there that I don't uh, know, I'm not familiar with. So I'm going to ask the stupid questions and ask for clarity as we go. No Um, question is stupid, Matthew. Oh, thank you. Just stupid people, right? No. (laughs) No. (laughs) Is Is that a line from Simpsons? I think so. Yeah. But okay. I think I think it's there uh, there's no stupid questions, just stupid answers. I mm. think that's what Yes, that's the other saying, yeah. Um okay. Well, enough of that. Um, we um so I Phil and I probably have equal amount of in-class teaching experience, I would say at this point. Maybe Phil is uh, got a year on me. Um but um I think we've both uh had to kind of through trial and error test out a lot of uh, different technologies and teaching styles. Um, So uh, for myself, I'm kind of reluctant when it comes to uh, technology. I'd kind of call myself a Luddite. Um, So I thought it would be kind of interesting to talk about 
Luddites a little bit. And I know Phil's such a fan of history, so there's a little... And, and I am a Luddite. Yeah? You're a Luddite as well? Luddite as well. Yeah. So okay. what do you got for us? Um, well, okay. So the Luddites were... Um, when the printing press was uh, kind of invented, um, it was invented in 1440, right? Did we look that up? Um, and for the first, like, 100 years of its invention, it was just kind of used to print Bibles. Um, and then... In 1517, you have the Protestant Reformation, the start of it. That's the 99 Thesis. And the Luddites, kind of from the beginning of the printing press, I would say, or kind of maybe 10 years in when it started getting popular and spreading, they would storm into these printing shops and bust up the printing press because they were sort of afraid of how technology was going to change society, I would say, kind of generally. So, Yeah, it, I, I think we could um, classify it as uh, acts of, organized labor as mm. well that they were scared um by the real threat that the printing press uh would cause them to lose their work as manual laborers and things like that mm. um, so they saw it as a sign of like future mechanization that was kind of kind of i think that's one reading mm -hmm. of the luddite movement yeah. um would they um would they i don't know i'm putting you on the spot because i don't know um, would they like smash up uh, windmills and things like this as well yeah like, other pieces of machinery yeah like, there's stories of luddites machinery. doing that as well yeah. Yeah. Uh, they, they were definitely um, acts of some sort of um, social movement, you could call it. Mm -hmm. uh, anyway, some sociologists um, study it through the social movement lens. So so why are we both like comfortable calling ourselves Luddites? Like, I know for myself, I've somewhat resisted using technology, and any technology I use in the classroom um, is very like carefully selected. Um, I have many reasons for that. We'll probably delve into them a little bit more as we go. But um, like, why would you call yourself a Luddite? Well, I think um, we call uh, people who have this um, kind of one foot in, one foot out relationship with technology a Luddite today. It's not, we. I don't think we use the name Luddite in like a pejorative sense anymore. Um, but... Um, I, I I call myself a Luddite because honestly, there's some stuff that just goes way far over my head. I don't understand it, and I just feel like I'm going to break it soon, and I just don't interact with it. Do you um like do you feel resentment when you experience like pressure coming from like wider society or culture or whatnot um, that we should embrace and accept every piece of technology that comes down the pipeline. Like I think of it with artificial intelligence. Like I'm freaked out about artificial intelligence. Mm. I, I imagine you are as well. Most people yeah. are kind of suspicious if they've watched Terminator 2. Right. Yeah. Um, but, um, but other like the so-called idea that um, we're, we're so busy that we need this technology in this so-called hectic 21st century where everyone is go, go, go. And like, I feel resentment when I see that. And I I almost like resist the technology that they're pushing on me because of that reason. Yeah. And like, so I, I don't think either of us are early adopters uh, mm -hmm. of certain technologies. Um and I think some some of the things that we've consumed technologically, we've been like in the mass area of consumption. Um, like we're we're not late adopters to things like cell phones or laptops. Um, I know from my personal history, I was like a very early adopter of the internet, even though I was very young. 
what uh, what year when like i remember going on in 1994 i remember going to those mailbox like the neighborhood mailboxes and stealing those aol cds and oh, that yeah. would be how you'd have to get on so right, i'm yeah. like early early and i remember going on the internet and, and there was like no websites to go to right yeah like no search engines right uh, so. ask jeeves oh wow uh yeah. that was one of them yeah um even web crawler web crawler that yeah, was another yeah. one yeah and uh alta vista alta vista yeah we have to... a neighborhood in ottawa called alta vista yeah <laughs> i always think about the uh search engine the search engine yeah. so yeah like i think uh depending on the various technologies that we've interacted with we're kind of either in the middle of the game or mm-hmm. like there's some stuff that uh, i know i'm a late adopter and some stuff i probably will never adopt mm-hmm. um like right now we don't have a TV in our house, uh, which like yeah. most millennials or Y generation folk, yeah. uh, we're, we are the cable cutter. Yeah. I don't have cable. People. Yeah. We um, have Netflix and a TV antenna. Well, this is just it. Right. So we have Netflix as well. And then, so how does that work? Uh, you know, that's a v- much more advanced technology than cable or TV antenna, mm. but we've adopted it. So there's some things that we adopt, some things that we don't. Uh, I think, uh, calling myself a Luddite just makes me feel good about, uh, you know, not wanting to follow the mainstream. So it's like one of those kind of, you know, we feel good being critical. Yeah. You know, a little bit on the outside looking so. in. Uh, yeah. that's, that's classic social science yeah. right there. Okay. So, um, so what about in class, um, use of technology presentations, whether it's you lecturing or, um, yeah. So just maybe we will just start out there because it's the most direct use. So I hate boring, dull, dry, static presentations. And the one thing that I hate the most is when I go to a conference and someone stands up in front with a PowerPoint slide that has uh, basically two or three paragraphs worth of text written in like size eight font from 50 feet away. You can't read it. So I am a huge advocate to create engaging presentations. And I do so through Prezi. Uh, Prezi is an online um, web-based software, so you don't have to install anything. It, um, how do you spell that? Uh, P-R-E-Z-I, Prezi. I think it's just Prezi.com. I'm going to oh, throw up I... the links to all these things that I'm oh, going to recommend for sure. yeah. um, so that you can easily navigate to it. And um, just as a preface, uh, I've used um, all of these things in various ways. Um, I've, I consistently return to Prezi. Out of everything that I oh, really? that I okay. that I will mention today, I consistently return to Prezi every time you do a presentation. If it's short, if it's long, if it's in front of students, if it's at mm-hmm. a conference, um, I, I go to Prezi. What's what I find great about Prezi is you save it online to your account. You can access it through any computer. So oh, that's so handy because um, constantly in conferences, there's the technological glitches, right? There we go. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I, uh, you know, how many times have I walked up to the podium? wanted to open my presentation and they don't have the PowerPoint version that I made it in. So everything kind of looks off or how many times have I forgotten my USB key? So Prezi, it's the way to go. Uh, The second thing that I have for presentations, and this um, is related to creating engaging uh, lectures or engaging time with uh, your students is TED ed um, or the TED X. So if you want quality content that's shareable, uh, TED Ed, TEDx, what you do is you can create or embed these videos in Prezi. So they kind of work together. Mm-hmm. So you can share the videos uh, with your students. Um, they can take it home. They can watch it again. So it's a great kind of 
continuation of your lecture when students mm -hmm. go home. And um, with TED, it's really cool because it's just sort of like either if you go through uh, YouTube or I guess their website, um, they'll they'll have like related lectures, right? So you can encourage your students to go down those rabbit holes and that's yep. where the real learning kind of happens. Exactly. Um, I have a question about Prezi. How long did it take you, would you say, uh, before you felt comfortable? Like how much of a learning curve is it? I've been using Prezi again. So this is one of the things. I was an early adopter of Prezi oh, okay. uh, because I've, I was looking for an alternative to PowerPoint uh, for a long time now. So I would say uh, I've been with Prezi since they've done many of the upgrades Currently, the way the layout is, uh, the way that the uh, user interface is set up, an hour to an hour and a half, you have it figured out. There That's are... not bad because with PowerPoint, like we've been using it for years and we still don't like we still don't know all the functions. So what's neat with Prezi and um, some of the other things I'm going to mention is they all have free um, versions uh, that oh. allow you to do certain things. Prezi has an academic version that unlocks. Uh, the pro kind of version. So what you have to do is use um, your institution email oh, um, cool. and then it, it, it unlocks an education version of it that gives you full access. And once um, that's unlocked, is it, sorry, this might be too insider baseball. You might have to edit this out, but is it just sort of on your computer and good to go from there? Or do you, you don't have, have to download like, anything? Like what about when you graduate? Like is, would you think your thing would be expired? Um, yeah, maybe. I'm just throwing it out there because yeah. I'm, I'm thinking about myself. Well, you know, if you're a prof, <laughs> you probably have an academic email for a mm. while. Yeah, uh, So sure. um, if you're a graduate student, at least you can mm. have it uh, during the time that you're studying. But it sounds like such a, if it's the first one that you recommend and you just said um, in the beginning, this is the thing that I return to all the time, like this might be the one that you, you buy the pro thing if you don't have an academic affiliation. Yeah, sure. Like it's it's yeah. the one to, to buy. Um do you have any um, sort of off top of your uh, head uh, tips on using Prezi or, um, or yeah, let's start with Prezi. Um, you know what? I'm just going to say go explore it yourself. There's okay. lots of tutorials online, lots tip. of help yeah. stuff. Uh, the way I use it is going to be different from the way that someone else is using it. Oh, okay. So they, it's very they, personalizable. It's personalizable. Yeah. It uh, allows you to uh, tap into your creative side to create presentations. Uh, but there are lots of templates and examples that you can uh, refer to for inspiration. But it's basically think of, uh, for Prezi, think of PowerPoint in a huge 3D canvas. Uh, so you can zoom in, zoom out, um, and it's just non-linear. So however your brain works, however you want your presentation to go, um, Prezi will allow you to do that. Okay. Do you gonna, have another recommendation? I, I do. I have. Okay. So uh, building if, on if this. You, uh, um, sorry, uh, just for me and you, we'll, we'll uh, pull back the, the fourth wall here. Um, if you have another recommendation, just fire it out because I was just about to write down a, a flashcard for you. So just, just, you know, go ahead. Well, building on the idea that um, presentations and time during lecture needs to be engaging. Uh, one of the things that you've probably heard Matt talked about is uh, gamification. Uh, so gamification, uh, have I, <laughs> well, it's, it's kind of, it's, it's, it's making, that? it's making its way. So gamification, okay. uh, is bringing in, um, games into how we learn. Okay. Uh, so it's making learning engaging through, um, goal setting, uh, through, uh, maybe some RPG sort of stuff, uh, character building. Um, so one of the ways that I've done it in the classroom and that works is with, uh, an app um, and a website called Socrative. Um, 
And what Socrative does is it allows you to build in-class quizzes. So you can um, basically create a quiz before going into class, throw it up on the projector, students answer using their mobile phone or tablet or computer, and you get instant answers uh, to what's going on. Now, what's fun about it is that they have a rocket ship uh, kind of mission goal. So um, individually or as small groups or even as a class, uh, the more answers you get right, the closer the rocket ship gets to the mm -hmm. goal. It's a little fun little game. It's like that Students game on prices, right? Where it's like, yolehihoo, is going up towards the mountaintop. <laughs> Interestingly that you brought up prices, right? Oh. Um, because my fourth recommendation for in-class presentations or lectures is actually Jeopardy. So, oh, you know, cool. another kind of game that has overtaken uh, the masses. Uh, what I suggest is Jeopardy Maker. It's an easy and fun way to bring in a game into a classroom. Jeopardy Maker is an online tool. It allows you to build your Jeopardy game, totally customizable, your own categories, your own questions, your own dollar amounts. There is a final Jeopardy round at the end. And the way I've done it is particularly around Halloween. Uh, and I've set up kind of two or three groups in the classroom uh, and the winning team gets uh, a loot of candy. What, so that works really well. Do you hook up like even the losers with like a couple of pieces here or there? Or Obviously. Do you just, yeah, okay, cool. Um, that um, like got me very excited in a weird way because I am a huge Jeopardy fan. So I won't elaborate on my excitement that I heard that there's something I can make Jeopardy games out of. And this one, Jeopardy Maker, even has sound effects. So really? there's the buzzer, there's a countdown, there's all that stuff. It is absolutely great oh, and free. That's amazing. Um, and I like... Uh, the idea of making quizzes as well. Um, if you can incentivize um, learning and kind of treat it like a bit like a sport, right? A couple of episodes ago where like get my get off my lawn kind of moment is like kids these days don't know how to win or fail, right? Yeah. And if you can incentivize learning, I remember it was like my second to last semester at UBC. So right at the end of my undergrad, um, my um, anthropology and environment or no anthropology of food teacher she her research was in northern mexico and uh, the people the women she worked with would weave these baskets out of um pine needles oh neat and um i smelled like i wanted those baskets so i made sure i won them yeah. and uh and that was one of the most like like not just enjoyable but also entertaining classes that i had there so yeah i'm big up on games i it's funny when you start talking about it i didn't think I've never really experimented with bringing literal games into the classroom, but like my thing is more trying to make learning fun, right? But this is a great way to do that. Yeah, and when we say making learning fun, the first kind of thing that most educators come uh, comes to mind is things like videos or things like engaging activities. Uh, but there's no reason why you couldn't, for example, bring in um, some uh, chess pieces and some chess boards, maybe even checkers, and use the game to, I don't know, explore historical military kind mm -hmm. of stuff. Um, you know, really, like, I, I've heard it all. One person from Carleton uh, who's defending their PhD, actually defended their PhD yesterday, um, uh, taught an entire class using stand-up comedy. Oh, I, um, I, I TA'd that class. So, you know, these, so there you go. So, <laughs> uh, so, you know, the, these things are, are, are out there. There's different ways of doing it. But my final recommendation for making in-class uh, or presentations or lectures more engaging is an old technology. We don't, you know, when we say technology, we don't have to think of apps and 
phones and computers. It's the chalkboard. Uh, mm. The board at the front, either chalkboard or whiteboard. Um, and when I, I'm a big proponent, and I think you are as well, Matt, mm. of the uh, walk, chalk, and talk yes. uh, kind of yeah. approach, yeah. which is, you know, write stuff down on the chalkboard, walk up and down the aisles, talk, mm. engage the students that way. Students will be engaged. Your listeners, if you're giving a presentation at a conference, will be engaged if you're engaged. Mm. So if you're just standing up there reading from a piece of paper, um, they're not going to be engaged as much as you are if you're walking around the classroom, you know, taking fielding questions, uh, making it dynamic, that sort of thing. That's awesome. I'm glad you brought that up because um, when we talk about technologies, it's really what we're saying is tools, right? Yeah, and, exactly. And a chalkboard and a piece of chalk or a whiteboard and a whiteboard uh, marker um, are our tools, um, our primary tools, I guess, yep. right? Um, so I remember one of my best, um, conference presentations at AAA, which is the, the big anthro, uh, federation, I guess, or association. Um, I talked about reflexivity and I talked about my own concussion experiences and I put a lot of passion into it. And I, my, the thing I read was not like an essay that right. some people read. It was like a script more right and i was using my hands and i was like leaning on the podium and like changing the tone of my voice all that sort of stuff right using like my presentation itself as almost like an instrument right exactly and um and i rocked it man i i know i rocked it because like seven people came up to me like some uh people in the audience uh the people on the panel they all wanted to hear about my research which was you know quite humbling right yeah well well um, done and the second thing, I was thinking about the chalkboard. Um, I also make like incredible use of the chalkboard. Um, I pace up and down, um, or I stand still to do a different sort of feel. Um, one of my memorable moments, I did this a couple of times, but um, a couple of years back, I was walking with a cane. I had uh, two concussions within like like 30 days of each other, right? And both like quite serious. Um, and I just needed a cane. And um, for the first class, like I was like, this is my research. This is what I do. And, and I didn't have my cane on me. And then I walk over to the thing and I was talking about othering, right. And how we other people with disabilities. And I'm like, I grabbed the cane and I just started walking and I just kept doing the, the lecture. And I'm like, now, what are you guys thinking about me right now? Oh. And then I'm just like, boom, like, even though you're not, um, thinking negative thoughts, you're thinking something. Right. right. And that's the whole thing about social sciences is that it's ongoing and it's ever yeah. present. Right. Yeah. So, you know, I always use myself as uh, an example. Yeah. You know? yeah. The, the, the last thing I'll say on that point is regardless of whatever technique or tactic uh, someone is trying to use uh, to make it in a presentation more engaging, it needs to be authentic. It needs to come across as authentic. Mm -hmm. If, you know, you're not comfortable uh, showing a film or you're not comfortable engaging students using a mobile app then don't, you know, mm. you know, you can't kind of role play like you did if that's it, if it doesn't come across as mm. authentic, it needs to be a real kind of experience. Mm. And I personally feel that standing in front of a podium and reading isn't an authentic experience either. That's mm. not kind of how we feel. It, it we, feels uncomfortable. It, it does. Yeah. I think over time, we I get, get nervous. Yeah. Yeah. And I think over time we get into the groove where we can just stand there and look down. Mm. Um, so it becomes easy. Autopilot, yeah. But, yeah. you know, 
Those are I've hands always down felt the worst. Those are the worst presentations, hands down. Yeah, and I I've always felt that uh, I've enjoyed listening to presentations where the person feels like they're part of a broader conversation that they're not a sage on a stage. Mm. And I'll I'll come back to that yeah. at the end um, because I think discussing power dynamics is important. Mm. But before we get there, I have some recommendations for collaborative tools or increasing our collaboration. So the first one. Um, I'm going to recommend is Dropbox. Uh, Dropbox, you can get a free account. You can also upgrade for bigger storage. I think most people would have heard of Dropbox by now. Um, what I like about Dropbox in particular to other cloud storage solutions is that you can easily embed the links from Dropbox documents and share them. Uh, so how I've used it is in a reading uh, seminar where I think we we're five or six, um, we would put in uh, all the kind of lecture materials and the reading stuff into this folder throughout the course of the term. Uh, the person who was in charge of that folder would keep it updated. Uh, and then at the end of the term, it was just unshared. And then it was kind of deleted and our time together using that shared folder was over. So it allows you to share documents for a variety of reasons, but also it allows you to unshare them quite easily. And I'm not convinced that other cloud-based technologies uh, do that. Yeah, it's um just on Dropbox. Uh, I that's one that I actually use, and um, I'm not as I say I'm a bit of a luddite. I'm I'm not very comfortable with technology, and it's so easy to use. Yeah. And it's such um, the interface is very uh, stripped down. Yeah. Um, it's very easy to share the links, and um, I mean we we have a Dropbox thing that we use for the show where we pass notes yeah. back and forth, and they're usually just like it's like handing back and forth like a yellow sticky note. Exactly. Yeah. Um, the next one. Uh, involves uh, your mobile technology, either iScanner or Scanner Pro or some form What's of... What's iScanner? Because that sounds like terrifying. That sounds like they're going to steal my retina. <laughs> or so basically um, some form of app that allows you to quickly scan uh, documents and email them or save them to Dropbox. Um, what? That exists? Uh, yeah. You use, your, the, oh. the, the, you use the camera on your phone. Matt's walking away. Um, yeah, Matt's walking away now. <laughs> All right. That sucks. Sit down. Oh, that um, sounds great. So the way I've used it is uh, to give feedback to students who have a hard time getting to campus for a meeting. Uh, they've submitted a midterm paper, um, oh, paper format. Yeah, smart. I've graded it and left my comments on the paper uh, in you know hard copy form. And I want to give this feedback back to the student. Uh, but for a variety of reasons, we can't meet up. What I do is I, I scan it um, and I send it out as a PDF. They're able to receive it uh, within seconds. They can see my comments, read it. And then, you know, I always make myself available to talk, which is my third recommendation for collaboration. If we can't meet up in person, Skype or Google Talk. Um, what do you prefer of the two lately? Either. Because it seems like that's one that goes back and forth. People's allegiances go back and forth with it. I'm comfortable with either. Um, you know, I always kind of leave it to the student. If they have a Skype account, we'll just use that because it's mm -hmm. easy. If they don't, then we'll use Google if they have that. So it's one of these, you know, I would say probably 95% of the students that I've interacted with have either one or the other. Um, so, you know, leave it up to them. Um, I find uh, Google Talk works um, a little less better than Skype for group calling. Uh, so collaborating across multiple researchers in different countries, for example, um, I'd prefer Skype. Uh, the reason for that is that you can kind of easily share your screenshots. So while you're working on a document, uh, you can easily... How do you take a screenshot in Skype? 
Because I've never really actually used Skype. I've talked it's, to people a few times on it, but I haven't yeah. like messed around with but it. It's just an option in Skype to share your is, screen. Is it like a button or something like that? Yeah. Like literally, like how do you do it? I think it's just a button. Yeah? Okay. Yeah. And it says there like screenshot? Yeah, I think so. Because that's like the level that I operate at, eh, folks? Like I'm I'm right down there. I'm like, well, what's the email? Well, uh, Matt, go 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 check go open Skype. Go, I'll, I'll walk you through it later. Okay. Do you have um, any other recommendations on collaboration? Yes. The last one is good old office hours. Um, uh. But you can do them individually or in a group. Uh, holding group office hours, um, I think, is a great idea when you want to address a common question. Uh, not so good if uh, individuals want to talk to you one on one. However, I will preface for making office hours great have a whiteboard or a chalkboard. So if your office mm -hmm. uh, doesn't have one of those, you can uh, purchase uh, kind of a smaller version to bring in. Um, almost every time I sit down with either a person during office hours or groups, inevitably I'm scratching things on a pad of paper. I'm, yeah. um, you know, mind yeah. mapping ideas. Yeah. But here's where it gets interesting. What I do is I bring in my whiteboard. We'll, you know, work out uh, some solutions to their problems. We'll mind map some ideas that they have. I scan it using the app on my phone ah. and I instantly send it to them. So they have a record of our discussions. Mm -hmm. So what I'm telling them during the office hours is let me be note taker. Let me be your guide and note taker for your questions. You don't worry about that. You worry about thinking what's really troubling you. And then immediately after they'll have a record, they'll have the notes, they can go to work. It also allows them to comment on those and send it back to me. So I have students who will post comments on the PDF that I send them and they'll email it right back to me and say, Hey, uh, so we were talking about this, but I'm thinking maybe I can extend it and go this way. What do you think? I read it, email back. Yep, absolutely. Go for it. So it makes collaborating quick, easy, um, different rather than, you know, having to sit down and find a time that works for everyone a little bit more manageable in our busy lives. Yes. Uh, one, when you have one-on-one -on -one office hours, especially when they, they come in for like essay help. Um, I do the same thing with the scratch pad where I mind map or if you like, um, the ideas out. And then I've always had students, um, just take a picture of that. Um, so what, a, so I'm going to ask you, um, one, I think it's interesting that with your scanner, you send it right to them and then probably pretty quickly after, um, they have follow-up questions. And then for you, that's great because it's also fresh in your head because within 48 hours, that idea is just, it's gone, right? Yeah. Um, so is that, like, what is better, like, like what, what is the benefit of these eye scanners, like, uh, as opposed to a student just taking a picture of the notepad? Like, does it convert it into a PDF, for example, or, like... Yeah, so eye scanner, scanner pro, allows you... Um, like, it to scan a picture a, to a PDF kind of thing, or...? It just automatically creates a PDF uh, oh, okay. in black and white, and it... Re it what it what I like about those two is that it centers your document, so okay. you don't have it on a weird angle. So it has some built-in kind of uh, cleanup features okay. that work really well, cool. Cool, uh, rather than just question, a regular yeah. picture. Okay, cool. Um, and it's uh, you know it's JPEGs, um, PNGs that you would share through a regular picture aren't as easily marked up than a PDF. Um, you might not have the software on your computer to do it, um, but a PDF can be easily marked up, can be easily shared, um, but Matt, you do bring up uh, an interesting kind of dilemma that, that we have, which is when you're doing all this, um, how do we manage our time? Because this could be very time consuming. 
Um, I have two things that I want to recommend. The first is um, an app, but it also has an online component uh, that you can access through a desktop, and that's called Toggle, T-O-G-G-L. Toggle tracks your time uh, under different categories, and you can link it to different projects. Now, Toggle is um, marketed towards the business crowd, uh, towards independent workers who need to keep track of uh, people who work contracts and things like yeah. this yeah so you know how many hours have i spent on uh, client a or yeah. client b uh, the way i use it is i have it set up that i have a variety of um, activities that i do so meeting with students is one grading is another uh, admin stuff is another travel time time at the library time writing um, i quickly press record on my phone while i'm doing those things at the end of the week it gives me a report and it says the percentage of time that I spent on these activities. Now, at the end of the week, I'm like most people stuck for time. I'm saying I have this list of things that I got to get done, but I have no time left. So what these reports allow me to do is say, well, you know what? Maybe I shouldn't spend so much time in the library. Maybe I should spend a little less time uh, doing whatever it is I was doing. So toggle, very, uh, very simple, clean interface, easy to understand. Um, what's, um, can you, with that, it's, can you also chart projects like weeks ahead, for example? Like, is it also like a goal setting tool for you? No, Toggle, uh, now it might have that functionality, I'm not sure, but I haven't used it that way. Um, I find Toggle just kind of maps what's actually happening. I oh, find okay. those goal sort of setting things, you can use whatever, whatever, you, else. whatever yeah. else you want to use. Um, but to actually come down to tracking how much time you yeah. spend on stuff, um, that's where it gets complicated, mm -hmm. right? Um, so I find that toggle is kind of the, the way to do that. Um, you can also backtrack and add manual time to certain activities. So if you forgot to press record, you can go back and, and just okay. manually enter it. So that's the key is the pressing record because the simple act of pressing record, you're like, okay, I'm locking in and I'm doing something for this amount of time. Exactly. Right. Now Which it's not really helpful. It's not a timer. So it no. won't buzz at you when 45 minutes has passed, for example, right. but, uh, it will tell you if you've spent 45 minutes doing something. Can um, I, um, I'm going to jump in right there because I got one crazy great piece of advice about time management and being effective. And I don't know if I'm jumping the gun and you're, this is going to be one of your recommendations, but I went to a um, basically a time management um, seminar and uh, the presenter passed on this um, tip that if you lock yourself down for like 40 to 45 minutes, which is the... Um, limit to like human attention span like even in super geniuses zone out like after 45 minutes psychological studies have shown um so you set down set a timer hit record on um toggle and um and then make sure that you stop at 45 minutes and you'll be a lot more effective like you'll be locked in for those 45 minutes because if you push it past that time to like 60 minutes that 15 minutes is when you actually look at facebook right um the second thing I want to uh, recommend for time management is Doodle. Uh, Doodle allows users to find a time that works for everyone to get together. Um, you can also use it uh, to plan a party. You can use it to plan a get-together. You can use it to do all these sorts of things. Once you um, start using it, you find that you use it for so many things. Use it's it like, for a lot of stuff. Yeah, yeah and your personal like time management if you, uh, if you need to use that. But Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm going to move right into uh, my last uh, two categories, um, stuff that I think most academics will have heard of. Um, 
and aspiring grad students or current grad students probably should start looking into um, one of them. So one category is citation management. Um, for that, I'm going to say that there are lots of stuff out there, such as RefWorks, Zotoro, Mendeley. Uh, they all keep your references and citations in check. The one that I use, the one that I'm trying to use more, it's not easy to use these things, is called EndNote. Um, why I like EndNote is you can save your PDFs um, and you can mark up your PDFs right in the tool. So when you find an article online, you download it, save it to a directory, link it into EndNote, mark it up right in there. So regardless of whatever you use, if you're writing, um, I think you should be using a citation management software, keeps track of everything, uh, declutters your mind, and it prevents you from having what I have, unfortunately, which is like eight piles high, very high piles of PDFs that I've printed. I'll, I'll it it gets messy. Say, um, I don't know what this says about EndNote, but the office has never looked uh, tidier. Yeah, uh, I'm trying not to print as much PDF stuff. Mm -hmm. If I do print it, I read it, um, I'll scan it and I'll put it back into EndNote. Um, sometimes I'll read it and then I'll just mark up the electronic version. Mm -hmm. What's happening more and more is more stuff is born digital. Um, mm -hmm. So more articles are accessible online. And you can do stuff with the PDFs now too. Where exactly. You, like, it used to be that you had to like hand copy out every single quote. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, okay. My second to last uh, sort of stuff that I'm going to recommend falls under the category of writing. Um, and the first thing I'm going to recommend within that category is Scrivener. Scrivener essentially replaces your text editing tool oh, that you're using. Um, so This is a really good one. So if you've been using uh, Microsoft Word like the majority of people, or if you've been using Mac Pages, forget about that structure. When we write, we write... Um, especially academic writing, rewrite in chunks. Mm -hmm. um, discursively it, as well. Yeah, mm -hmm. discursively. Um, and our stuff moves around. Sometimes what's mm -hmm. in chapter three ends up in chapter seven after. It should. If you're using something mm -hmm. like Microsoft Word or um, Apple Pages, what ends up happening is your document, which is like 300 pages long, is viewed and interacted with linearly. What Scrivener does is it allows you to create albums what they call a binder. So you can create little tabs to each of your chapters without having to um, scroll through tons of pages or use some sort of messy way to, to float around in your mm -hmm. document. Scrivener puts it all there. Now, what's even better about Scrivener is you can link up your source data to those binders. So in your binder, you have your text that you're writing and you have your data that you're interacting with, audio files, video files, oh. links, PDFs. Now so it's, it, it like replaces all those open windows and all the tabs and you all can that have sort of stuff jumping one, back and forth. One window oh open, goodness. your Scrivener window. Now, if you're like me when you're writing about something, ideas are popping into your mind. Um, yeah, Scrivener yeah. has integrated this through what they call a cork board. So on the right-hand side, natively by default on the right-hand side, you have what is called a cork board. It's basically where you put your Post-its. You click, you add a new one, write in your post-it and it stays there when it's time to integrate that post-it into a certain chapter you drag it into the binder boom the text is right there it's amazing it sounds like it's a program that does all the things that you had to do by hand and that you wished one program actually did scrivener does it there's a free trial for it uh that's limited in time and then um, you do have to pay for it it is a lot less expensive than if you would have to go out to buy 
uh, Microsoft Word or uh, Pages. Do you know? Um, Sorry, do you know the ballpark? Yeah, I think I paid like uh, with the current currency conversion. uh, There's an academic credit, uh, student credit coupon Mm -hmm. that you can get. I think I paid like fifty bucks for it. Um, like forever or yeah it's yours forever you oh, can install it on any of your devices oh okay any of your computers now scrivener has come out with a tablet version of it ah, so what this means is that you can sync your documents <laughs> you can sync your documents through the scrivener cloud you so you can start working on your laptop uh press save uh jump on the bus uh, on the bus you get a great idea open up your tablet type in your notes um that's not so but you said Evernote. Evernote is my second suggestion for mm. writing. Evernote, you can save notes, you can add film, video files, links, references, anything you want into Evernote. Now, unfortunately, Evernote and Scrivener don't work together mm-hmm. uh, like Evernote does with some other software. Mm-hmm. But I still I think <laughs> I still think that Evernote has its place mm-hmm. and it's still beneficial. So I still recommend yeah. that. Yeah, Evernote is almost like your your virtual notepad if you have to exactly yeah, and then scrivener is like the engine like of your writing process scrivener is the engine uh the chassis the transmission yeah. the like it's everything, everything. Yeah. like it even gives you a nice soft pillow even like, the alternator you know what it gives you a writing count where you can set goals uh for certain chapters or oh, certain projects wow. and then work towards them so you tell it you know what um this entire piece of work needs to be a hundred thousand words um and then you say, I need to be done in a certain amount of days. It will tell you how many words you need to write per day. It will auto-adjust if you write more or less. So it's a goal-setting, text editing, uh, citation management, uh, data management. It's everything. It's great. I absolutely love it. Um, and the reason we're doing this episode so early on, I think, like communicating all these tools that Phil uses, one, I wanted to learn about them. So I'm happy that I took a nice full another full page of notes on Phil here. Um, but... Uh, a book I would just off the top of my head recommend is uh, Stephen King's book on writing. And uh, I, his main argument there, and you hear it all the time, is that writing is a process and writing is difficult for everybody. And I think it's a big stigma in grad school that we all think that everybody else is a great writer and it's a really easy process for them. So this is why we're actually being honest and communicating and telling you that, yes, we struggle with writing as well. Everyone struggles with writing. It is a art form that needs to be honed and practiced. Um, and we can only get better at writing. Everyone can. Um, all right. On that note, I do have another recommendation that will hopefully help writing, uh, along. And that is the website power thesaurus. A lot of you probably use thesaurus.com. I hope everyone has stopped using the, the thesaurus that's found in Microsoft Word. Um, the, interestingly, the thesaurus that is found in Scrivener is very good. However, I still use Power Thesaurus. Um, it gives you uh, simple results um, and that allows you to get inspired. Now, two hardware recommendations for writing. MacBook Air or a Chromebook. What you want is a small, portable device. You don't want your writing being hunkered down and weighed down with a large desktop PC. What you want is your writing to float with you, to go with you where you want. If you're not happy with the keyboard that comes natively with those devices, I suggest you buy a Bluetooth or a USB keyboard. Again, something that you can unfold and bring with you. If you want something more robust at your desk, then get a nice robust keyboard with an external monitor. That's my setup. But you want your writing to be able to be transportable. 
so that you can go around, uh, work in cafes, work uh, from uh, the library at the university or a community center or at a park. Uh, both those have great battery life. Um, obviously, the MacBook is much more expensive than the Chromebook. Um, however, I'm, you know, I'm putting emphasis on that it needs to be portable. My, my, uh, I'll just say my favorite writing machine that I had was in my master's. I wrote my uh, master's thesis on it. It was my little netbook, yeah. right? And I liked it because the keyboard was really small, so it was almost like, like my hands were almost touching together. And I was just like. Like writing on it, yeah, and I was on fire on that device. And it, um, you know, it died because uh, for various reasons, hardware related. But I feel like um, the smaller computers have improved technologically, where the battery life is long, like the processing speed is up there. Uh, mine really got slow really quick, and all I could use it for was a word processing machine, which I still do. Yeah, what I suggest, regardless of the device that you have, is to invest in an external hard drive. You want to save everything, back everything up, mm. keep things, the, you know, the, the large PDF, the large audio video files off of um, your notebook uh, or your laptop. What you want to do is keep that on a hard drive. I have uh, a two terabyte external hard drive that I put all the heavy stuff on and I keep my uh, laptop light. Now, right now it's full to like 50%, but you know, wow. these are habit things. Yeah, yeah. Um, so even if you do have Dropbox and you save everything to the cloud, save it twice. That's, that's yeah. my big that's advice. That's a good practice. Yeah. Um, you know, you invest in a good hard drive, it's going to last you, uh, you know, basically forever. Um, so that's it for um, my recommendations. Um, I have two other things that I want to talk about very quickly, um, but they revolve around philosophies of teaching. Um, one of them is called flipped learning. And that philosophy basically takes how you learn, where you learn, and turns it upside down. Traditionally, the model is that students will enter into a lecture hall, they'll consume lecture material there, and then after lecture, go home to write uh, their assignments. What flipped learning does is it says, consume your lectures at home, using your computer, using online videos, links, consume your lectures at home, come into the lecture hall to apply that knowledge Come into the lecture hall when TAs are there, when the prof is there, when other students are there. That's the time when you start writing your assignments, where you start being creative. Um, I think that these models are an extension to something like the tutorial time uh, that most intro classes have. I don't think that they would work so well with the 200 people class, but they could work very well for a upper year, uh, upper year undergrad course with maybe 20, 30, 40 people. Uh, flip learning. Yeah, that's interesting. When you said flipped learning before we started recording, I thought it was like, oh, get the students to teach the teacher, right? Like it was like a philosophical flip. Um, but like that just jumped on. I'm like, wow, that's really, it's quite simple, right? It's just turning upside down the normal model of how we do things. Um, but it just completely opened my mind. I was like, there's so much potential in that. And if you think about it, our students, our undergrads, um, they're at home watching basically lectures, whether they're documentaries or TED Talks and things like this, right? Exactly. Um, I, for one, am like camera shy, but I also thought I had stage fright before I started like lecturing in tutorial rooms. So, yeah. um, so I think that's something to get easily to get over and it is the way things are going. And I also um, just re-popped into my head. It really does um, make the readings that they'll have to do a lot more understandable because it's directly, like quite literally linked to the lecture. So they can stop the lecture, go back, 
read it or listen to it again and read their readings along with it, which is just better for learning, it sounds like. Yeah, and I think the idea of applying knowledge in groups also gets some students out of the habit of waiting to last minute to create their documents, uh, waiting till the night before to try to write a, a, an article. So you can jumpstart that process. You can combine it with a lot of the things that I've spoken about previously and have mini goals. You can uh, make it into a game. You can have periodic checkups. You can do oh, it through sure. quizzes. So there's a lot of stuff that can go into that. Um, so one of the, so as you can probably kind of see Matt where I'm heading with this is that the power dynamics um, of a classroom, which are real, um, can be shifted by paying attention and bringing in new forms of technologies. However, those same power dynamics can still be present if you don't keep them in check. So what I'm talking about is the traditional prof in the front, sage on the stage, has something to say, students sit there quiet, consume everything, power is all geared towards the front. What I'm saying is that I think we need to keep that in check. We need to recognize that that possibility is there and you know move away from that the professor owns and holds all the the knowledge can be a shared experience in the classroom of course and i think we all i say of course because i think we all um i think most i would like to think most of us uh recognize that there is a power dynamic there and sometimes we try to address it in seemingly trivial ways like um it's not much but um you know, just moving around in front of the class, as Phil says, with the chalkboard. Um, maybe sitting down at the same eye level as your students is an easy way to do it. I did it with my cane that one time. Um, I would always talk about my concussions, like right up front, very first lecture, just before the syllabus. Like I would just, and then that right there is like, oh, Matt's like, you know, like, I, I don't know. It just, it just brought me down to their level, right? Um and another one that I use, and it's kind of cheap, but um, I'll drop a, little, a few swear words like within a lecture to convey um, not only that I'm like, oh, I talk like you, but more of that like to convey emotion behind what I'm saying. Like I'm really like pissed off, like something even at a low level is that. Yeah, and I think recognizing that students uh, are also producers of knowledge and are also emotional and being able to tie that back into your lecture material uh, or your presentation material we're, we'll make just for um, a way better classroom experience all around. Um, and a better teaching experience as well. Absolutely. Like too, it's just, yeah. it's so much more fun, not only bringing in like say games like uh, you mentioned or Jeopardy Maker, but um, even um, just like the act of preparing for a lecture and getting excited about what you're going to talk about. And also feeling prepared is a big thing. Like students can sniff out bullshit obviously yep. but they really can sniff out if somebody's not prepared it's really yep. clear right yeah um all right i'm gonna wrap this up uh with a uh not so subtle plug for a book that i think will help all graduate students it is by kevin d haggerty and aaron doyle it's called 57 ways to screw up in grad school oh cool perverse... i'm so glad you recommended this sorry go on. Um, yeah, sorry you have to do it all again i'm very excited perverse <laughs> professional lessons for graduate students um, what Haggerty and Doyle do is walk through how their experience, uh, supervising graduate students, um, has informed, uh, 57 kind of statements about how graduate students typically fail. So they take their own experience, uh, as grad students, but also as supervisors, condense that down to 57 sure ways that you'll fail. Um, 
I'm not going to even recite any of them. Mm. Um, there's a website, 57 Ways to Fail. You can go and check it out. Um, but I think uh, some of the stuff that I've mentioned uh, and that Matt has talked about today will help you not fail, hopefully. Mm. But I also want to say that if you've tried some of the things out, we'd love to hear from you. We'd love to know what your classroom techniques or some of the technology that you've used if it's worked, maybe you failed using it. Maybe mm. uh, you have a question about how to use it. So how about we get a little discussion going around classroom techniques, technologies, yeah. tools. That would be exciting. It would be, it would be, honestly, it would be great. Um, you can do that through Twitter at the underscore sim, S-I-M underscore P-O-D. That's the underscore sim underscore P-O-D on Twitter. You can email us at semi-intellectual at gmail.com. That's semi-intellectual, all one word. Our website is thesim.com podbean.com and we're now on itunes and stitcher so leave us uh, a review um, give us a rating uh, leave your comment about um, you know maybe you found this list interesting maybe you didn't uh, you know like us don't like us but tell us uh, really we're here to to give you content uh, that you want to hear so uh, let us know thanks Hey everyone, we're back. Um, we're back with some recommendations. Uh, Matt's brought in a couple books. They're in on the table in front of us. I'm really curious what he has to say about them. Um, Matt, it looks to me like you have a George Orwell or two there. Two George Orwell. Um, as per usual, I took a look at my uh, bookshelf and just grabbed things at random, and I'm like, ah, a couple of George Orwells. Um, the first one is um, it's a collection of his essays, so this might be in some other collection of essays, but um, the one I have here is published by Penguin. It's got a green cover, <laughs> uh, and it's called Books versus Cigarettes. Um, so within it, I'm just going to read uh, some of the essay titles because the titles themselves say it all. So. Yeah. Um, Books versus Cigarettes is uh, Orwell um, kind of quantified his own life and calculated how much he was spending on the two and uh, did a cost-benefit analysis of himself. That's awesome. Yeah, so um, brought that with uh, Phil in mind uh, with our bookshelves. Um, the next one is Bookshop Memories. So that's uh, memories of him working like a retail-used bookstore. Um, Confessions of a Book Reviewer oh. is one that I think everybody would like. Um, it's... Uh, yeah, it's just like this confessional where he just admits um, how deeply his procrastination goes. So even Orwell procrastinated. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That's absolutely. amazing. That makes me feel so much better, man. Thank, <laughs> th thank you for leaving me with that thought. <laughs> um, so my particular volume has four other ones, and I'll just run through them really quick. Uh, the Prevention of Literature, uh, My Country, Right or Left, which is a quite a famous essay. Um, how the Poor Die. So it's like... He did a public health like study on his own time. Oh, neat! About how the poor died, essentially. Wow! So this gets us into Orwell's uh, nonfiction stuff as well. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. And what's the uh, second Orwell uh, that you've brought in? So, uh, so many people have read 1984 and Animal Farm. I asked Phil, "Have you read Orwell?" And those are the two he's read, and that's yeah. the two that most people read, right? Yeah. So this is. A work of nonfiction by Orwell. It's almost like um, if he just called it an ethnography, it was an ethnography. Okay. And it's called The Road to Wigan Pier. And uh, my buddy Evan uh, recommended this book to me. He actually gave it, I think this is his. Um, but it's basically uh, written in 1937 or the mid-30s. 
uh, published in 1937. Um, and he was commissioned by the Left Book Club, which sounds awesome. Yeah, right? just the name. <laughs> um, and essentially, he um, went out to explore the coal areas of Lan Lancashire and um, Yorkshire. And he essentially just documented uh, the lives of the coal workers and their families and uh, the struggles they face. And it's um, one of the best books I've ever read. That's awesome. It reminds me, uh, the way that you've just explained it reminds me uh, of a book uh, by Norbert Elias that looks into a small little community as well around that area. Um, really? Yeah. Do you, do you know what it's called? Uh, I would have to, uh, you know what, I would have to look it on the bookshelf. Maybe we'll post post in the show notes just the, uh, the yeah, name of that. Yeah, I'm going to post the, because I think they, they can probably be read together. It looks about the same page length anyway. Yeah, so. yeah. Skinny little book and uh, very powerful. Great. So what were the titles of those two again? Um, so uh, the collected essays was Books versus Cigarettes. Um, that one was published by Penguin. And then oh, the other one's published by Penguin as well. It's called The Road to Wigan Pier, both by George Orwell. Check those out. Matt's recommendations. Read Orwell this week. Uh, thank you for joining us on this episode of Semi-Intellectual Musings. As always, you can tweet, uh, send us a tweet at the simpod that's the underscore sim underscore pod you can send us an email semi-intellectual gmail.com our website for the show is the sim.podbean.com we are now on itunes and on stitcher uh, so subscribe rate review send us your feedback let us know what we're doing right and i think that's a wrap for uh, this episode thanks a lot thanks for listening comfort and carry me to my new home